I want to read something to you. Okay. Actually, it might be better if you read it. Okay. This is a report by Harry Malcolmson. He was a lawyer, but also an art collector and critic. You might recognize his name from the Malcolmson collection at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Mm -hmm. I don't have an exact date on this, but sometime around 1965, Malcolmson invited several Toronto gallerists to view 20 paintings by artist Alex Jambier. The group included the Isaacs Gallery, Moose, Sabat, Pollock, and a couple of others. He asked these individuals to assess the work according to three basic questions. 1. Did the art have merit? 2. Did they wish to represent the artist? 3. What would they suggest for future training for this artist? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Read that part. This is his analysis on the result. Okay. So... I strongly suggest these dealers' reactions are the most authoritative evaluation you can obtain of Janvier's present standing in Canadian art. It's because these persons are professionally engaged in evaluating the work of young artists. They would see work of dozens of young artists in any given year and, accordingly, are vastly more experienced at judging such work than any critic, public gallery director, or collector. I pulled some quotes on what they found. Mr. Isaacs feels Jean-Bierre's work to be a hodgepodge of ideas. It is a long, long way from being a standard to warrant presentation in his gallery. Ouch. There's some more. Walter Moose. Mr. Moose's reaction to the paintings was negative. He said they were of no consequence. Uh, they were a mishmash of styles and approaches. Uh, he felt them to have nothing to do with Jean-Bierre's Indian traditions, but to be an opportunistic borrowing from readily available art examples. The Maslow Gallery also notes that his work has little mythological character. And uh, Jack Pollock of the Pollock Gallery... Oh, hey, we know him. <laughs> and Malcolmson underlines that fact in his report. He notes Pollock's relationship with Norval Morisot as an Indian antecedent in the Pollock Gallery. Okay, so it says, uh, Mr. Pollock, however, refused to exhibit Janvier's work either by way of a one-man exhibition or by hanging them on an occasional basis in one of the gallery's rear rooms. He did not want his gallery to be the home of Canadian Indian art. He would not show Indian art unless he felt it merited exposure for art reasons. But Pollock also notes that Janvier's work did not say anything in relation to his Eskimo background. <laughs> Alex's Dene, point in fact. But for a gallery that doesn't want to be the home of Canadian Indian art, one of Pollock's knocks against Jean Vier's work is that it's not Indigenous enough in its themes. Jack Pollock referred Malcolmson to take the work to the Sabot Gallery, who is interested in an exhibition with the usual fees paid by the artist and a 40% commission. But, and this is me reading, Mr. Sabot made it clear that his promotion of Jean Vier would strongly refer to his Indian background. Why am I reading this as our cold open? Read Malcolmson's conclusion. Okay. The foregoing reactions are as hopeful and positive as could be expected in relation to an artist's painting as short a period as Jean Vier has. Contrary to popular belief, there are very few native geniuses that, like the rose, blush unseen. This is three years after Norval showed at the Pollock Gallery. So the art world hadn't really changed. Imagine that. I'm Soleil Lunière. And I'm Ryan Barnett. And this is episode two in our new series, Among Equals. The history and legacy of the professional native Indian artist, Inc. 
In our last episode, we looked at the early lives of artist Norval Morisseau and Daphne Ojig, and Norval's explosion on the Canadian art scene. In this episode, we're looking at the quiet aftermath of that show and what happened next for the First Nations artists in the wake of Morisseau's celebrated debut, including the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67. All that coming up right after this. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. So, what was it like for Indigenous artists trying to work and trying to get noticed in the 1960s? It's really kind of a, a policy of exclusion in terms of admission into fine art galleries. Uh, there's a big distinction between an ethnographic museum and a fine art museum or gallery, and that the you know the creative uh, products of, of artists who are of Indigenous uh, heritage wouldn't be considered art. In, in those days, it was considered artifact. This is Greg Hill, an artist, curator, and Indigenous art consultant. The proper place for artifacts were in ethnographic museums and not galleries, so artists were excluded from fine art institutions collecting and exhibiting. And the government took action in in trying to create art as handicraft, as, as ways of economic activity, which began earlier with uh, the Inuit art market and uh, starting in 1949. In 1949, James Houston, who was an artist and civil servant working in Cape Dorset, in what is now called Nunavut, organized one of the first significant exhibitions of Inuit art for a non-Inuit audience. Houston would eventually found the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative, now known as Kinggate Studios, as a workspace and distribution center for Inuit printmakers, sculptors, and carvers. Kinggate Studios was home to artists like Kenogiwak Ashavak and Pitalusi Seila, and later Annie Purugok. Also in 1949, Prime Minister Louis Saint-Laurent appointed the Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters and Science. Its purpose was to investigate the state of arts and culture in Canada. With regards to the state of First Nations art, here's what the Commission found. Read this. Okay. There is, we believe, general agreement that certain forms of Indian art have disappeared finally with the customs that gave rise to them, and that the indiscriminate use of totem poles to advertise gasoline stations does nothing either for the cause of the Indian or for the cause of art. The establishment of a national arts and crafts program is a basic necessity for the development of Indian welfare. Indians in Canada are a minority, and for the most part are economically, socially, and intellectually depressed. 
Their formal education is a responsibility of the Indian Affairs Branch, and we've heard it proposed that arts and crafts should be an essential part of that education. The success of West Baff and Eskimo Co-op became a kind of model for Indian Affairs in handling all Indigenous art. Beginning in the 1960s, for the Indigenous artists working in Canada, it almost certainly meant you were entangled in some Ottawa bureaucracy. The Department of Indian Affairs, I'm going to use that as a blanket name because the Indigenous portfolio was bounced around and renamed several times. The Department of Indian Affairs took a vested interest in developing a First Nations art market. Well, that, that department exists to... Uh, to take a role in every aspect of people's lives you know, uh, that, that met the criteria for status Indian. It's kind of the whole premise of, of Indian Affairs, right? It's a paternalistic government institution that dictates what kinds of economic activities should be undertaken that they determine would have the best chances for profit or for you know, people to make a sustainable living from. So it was under that kind of thinking that the Department of Indian Affairs and the Indian Art Collection began in the 60s and began to look at art as, as economic activity, what would sell, what they could promote, and they began a collection at that time. Some of, some of the artists that we're talking about were involved in that. One of those artists was Alex Janvier. Jandier was born in 1935 in Cold Lake First Nations, Treaty 6 territory. Indian Affairs assigned Jandier the number 287 when he was a baby. That is how he would be known to the government. At eight years old, missionaries working locally put Alex and a number of other children in the back of a truck and took them to the Blue Quills Residential School, 150 kilometers away from their home, Alex would say later in an interview. The missionary might have warned my parents, but I wasn't totally into the picture until I was thrown in the back of the truck. We prayed day and night, meal in and meal out, class in and class out. We were just harpooned with that stuff. Towards the end, they would just openly say that our parents and our grandparents are evil, that they're no good. I could never see my parents as evil. My parents knew something strange happened there because my older brothers and sisters were dispirited people when they came home. They didn't last very long. They died. They say it was tuberculosis, but the school just killed them on the inside. Janvier started painting at Blue Quills. When Alex was 12, the school gained a new headmaster, Father Etienne Bernet-Roland. I can't speak to the character of Father Bernard Holland, but Alex credits him with his having a separate fate from that of his siblings. Recognizing Janvier's artistic talent, Father Holland introduced him to the works of Picasso, Cézanne, and Kandinsky. Quoting Alex again, It was a feeling of excitement I had never had before. I was discovering new things. In 1953, Le Petit Journal, a daily newspaper out of Montreal, profiled a 17-year-old Janvier. In that article, the writer Delors Morin describes some of the young artist's work, all of which is on display in the school chapel. 
There are sculptures and gouache paintings, all of which present Catholic subjects, but indigenous in their theme. There's a painting Genevieve made of the Virgin Mary, entitled Our Lady of the Teepees, which featured Mary with, with all the features of an Indian mother, carrying the baby Jesus in a carrier. That painting was reproduced by request and exhibited in Rome. At 17. He stood out. When he aged out of the residential school system, Alex wanted to continue his education at the Alberta College of Art. Well, he actually wanted to study elsewhere, but Calgary was as far as the Indian Affairs officials were willing to send him. Alex said they were footing the bill, about $55 a month. They thought they had the right to determine my whole life. Notice a team? Paternalistic vibes. The Indian Affairs officials initially didn't allow Janviers to study fine arts, instructing him to instead enroll in the school's commercial art courses. Two of his professors, Illingworthker and Marion Nicole, stepped in. They recognized his talents. What'd they say? They told the Department of Indian Affairs, quote, Every once in a while, a natural racehorse comes along. You don't hook that racehorse to a plow. This is jaunty. <laughs> it's Canada, it's the mid-1960s. Centennial fever has gripped the nation. By 1965, plans were already underway for Expo 67, the universal and international exhibition to be held in Montreal. It was five years in the making. The city of Montreal built a literal island out of silt, rock, and landfill to help host the event. The theme? The theme? Yeah. All world expos have a theme. For the Exposition Universelle of 1889 in Paris, the origin of the Eiffel Tower, the theme was the French Revolution. Oh, uh, timely. <laughs> well, another hundred-year commemoration. Mm -hmm. For Expo 67, the theme was Man and His World. This was a huge, costly event priced at something like 320 million to mount. 90 pavilions were planned and built. Most were national pavilions for participating nations, including the United States, Australia, and what was then called Czechoslovakia. There was a Canadian pavilion, which was an inverted pyramid called the Ketimovic. There was a rotating cinema showing films made specifically for Expo by the National Film Board of Canada. Some of the structures were also built around the theme, the list of which included the Indians of Canada pavilion. That pavilion was a hundred-foot, abstracted teepee-like structure ornamented with a totem pole. If anyone listening wants to see what it looked like, there's an NFB film called Indian Memento, which was sponsored by the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development. It offers a detailed walkthrough. Here's Greg Hill again talking about the significance of Expo 67. That was a watershed moment for... Uh, indigenous peoples, I think, in general. It was really the first time that Indians in Canada had uh, a, vo a voice uh, in, in, in an 
international forum. In our last episode, I told you about the ugly history of Indigenous peoples' participation and representations at World's Fairs and Expos. At its worst, it was putting people like Abraham Ulrichab on display as living exhibits in a human zoo. And at its best, and I should throw a dozen qualifier in front of that word, it involved having indigenous peoples engage in the performance of culture, recreating an anthropologist's idea of what it was to be Indian. Romantic ideas that were often divorced from their authentic present realities. But for Expo 67, despite the fact that the Indians of Canada Pavilion was planned with the oversight of the Centennial Commission and the Department of Indian Affairs, at least an Indian Advisory Council was established. Alex Junger was one of the people that was working on on that uh, pavilion, um, not only as an artist, but, uh, but in other capacities as well. At the same time that gallerists and creators in Toronto were evaluating the merits of Alex Jamvier's painting, he was in Ottawa, invited by the Department of Indian Affairs to take part in a symposium to establish the policy for the department's cultural affairs program. The symposium included Norval Morisseau and other First Nations artists like George Clutzi, Tom Hill, Duke Redbird, Bill Reed, and Gerald Tailfeathers. Also, among this group invited to consult on the development of the pavilion was Jackson Beardy. What's that sound? That's, <laughs> well, that's the job for when we introduce a member of the PNIAI. Quincy Pickering Jackson Beardy was born on Garden Hill First Nation in Manitoba in 1944. Jackson was brought up by his grandmother. He was taught, you know, traditional ways by his grandmother. And he was very fond of her. This is Pauline Beardy. Everybody calls me Paula, so... <laughs> I am Jackson Beardy's widow. Jackson was the fifth of 13 children. And like Norval and Daphne with their grandfathers, he grew up under the wing of a grandparent. I remember him saying that you know, one night he had a vision of his grandmother or a, um, a uh, dream of his grandmother and he went very cold and he realized that she had, uh, had died. So he often um, talked about his grandmother and how stable she was and they had a good relationship and that he often referred to her, and, and he missed her a lot. But like Norval and Alex, and thousands of other indigenous children, when Jackson reached school age, he was sent to residential school in Portage in La Prairie. I remember Jackson saying they never ever had enough food. And it was at this school that this OG Cree boy was separated from that connection to his past and to himself. In his book, Jackson Beardy, Life and Art, author Kenneth James Hughes writes about the devastating, alienating impact that 12 years in residential school had on young Jackson. It was so successful in its efforts to assimilate Jackson into white Canadian culture that it all but erased those first six years with his grandmother. When he returned to his reserve at the age of 18, he felt like an alien among his own people. 
Not only did he speak English perfectly, but he thought in English, having to translate his thoughts into Cree before speaking to people in his own community. Uh, and he found it difficult to assimilate because they didn't really accept him as sort of being like a white Indian. Jackson soon began to travel around in what Hughes called a process of retrieving his culture, so as to escape that deep sense of alienation. But it was often an uncomfortable journey because he was often met with suspicion. Why? Well, Hughes puts it this way. In features, he looks like an Indian. In dress, he looks like a Hollywood Indian. In his attitude, he seemed more like a white anthropologist. A little too curious. He was doing the honest work of trying to reconnect with who he was and where he'd come from. At the same time, he was trying to obtain an arts education. He had stayed at the residential school until he was 18, even though many kids tried to run away at 16. 16 was the age when the authorities stopped chasing after you. Jackson stayed, because his principal had made the promise that if he graduated high school, he would be able to go to college to study fine arts. But when the time came, the principal went back on his promise, telling Jackson that artists were beatniks. Beatniks? Yeah, he told him that they had educated him to be a decent citizen who can live and earn a living in white society. But... There's a but? But he would send him to study commercial art if he wanted. And then some prof stepped in and vouched for his talent? No, not in Beardy's case. He really disliked the principal. I remember we were sitting watching television and there was an advertisement that came on quite regularly and it was called Mr. Clean. The one and only two-fisted Mr. Clean. And this Mr. Clean reminded Jackson of the principal and he got really upset. So he told Mr. Clean, I'll show you, I hope. He did. He told his principal that he'd show him that he would become an artist, whether it meant he had to live on crackers and sleep on lice-ridden mattresses, as the man had warned. And three or four years <laughs> later, he's sitting at a table with Norval Morris, Bill Reed, and Alec Jambier, advising on the art for the Indian Pavilion. He showed him. I'd say. In 1966, uh, Morisot and a group of people, including um, Alex Chanvier, were invited to come to Ottawa to talk about um, the art for the outside of the Indians of Canada Pavilion. This is Carmen Robertson. My name is Carmen Robertson, and I'm a Scots Lakota researcher at Carleton University in Ottawa. And I'm the Canada Research Chair in North American Indigenous Art and Material Culture at Carleton as well. Carmen also recalls the importance of Expo 67. Well, the Indians of Canada Pavilion has been written about extensively, and as it should be, because it's a really important pivotal moment. It changed the way the world and Canada saw Indigenous people However, it seemed like because there's this sense of cultural amnesia in Canada, much of that was forgotten. But in 67, it was a real important flash moment. This is Greg Hill again. Well, I'm sure that the uh, government of Canada would have 
assume that this would be something of great interest for tourism, for cultural tourism, as possible economic opportunities for indigenous peoples. Remember how you remarked on the building being a hodgepodge? The building itself, the massive tipi-like structure, was designed by a government architect with little consultation. It was the centennial, a time of reflection for the country. But this meant something very different for non-indigenous people than it did for indigenous folks. This tension was reflected in the art that was commissioned for the pavilion. September 27, 1966, the Winnipeg Free Press published an article about the meeting in Ottawa that brought these indigenous artists together. But as Carmen observed in her book on Morisot and the media, the article is focused on Norval's participation. He was 34 at the time and had a reported $15,000 commission for a show in Montreal. It was a foregone conclusion that he would be one of the artists selected to create a mural for the Indians of Canada Pavilion. In the end, eight pieces were commissioned for the exterior of the building. These included murals from George Cloutsy, Francis Kajik, and Norval Morisot. There were also circular panel murals, each three meters in diameter. But some of the artists faced difficulties when it came to their proposed visions for their work. And Alex Janvier's painting, he gave it a, crit a title that could be considered critical. He titled his panel mural, which was an abstract piece, The Unpredictable East, a critique on Ottawa's control over Indigenous peoples. Uh, they did not like the title and, and you know, um, Alex Janvier created very uh, political titles and uh, edgy stuff and that was too much for them and so... So it was moved from the front of the pavilion to the back of the pavilion. Alex signed the work with his name but also his treaty number, 287. This was a form of protest he exercised at the time. What about Norval? Norval also ran afoul of Indian Affairs and the Centennial Commission. And Morisot was, uh, it was not a surprise that he had one of the major murals because he was at that time uh, a pretty well-known artist in Canada. And um, so he had an idea for uh, a mural. He presented a maquette, as did uh, the other artists. A maquette is a scale model. Corey Dingle of the Morisot estate explains further. He kind of, kind of pulled a fast one. Uh, Morisot did an original sketch of what he wanted to do and and didn't really show anybody he he showed them one thing and then really had something else in his pocket then when they got to montreal and he was starting to create the maquette it became clear that his version of what he wanted to do and this was a work of art he had created oftentimes, which shows a mother figure nursing both a bear cub and uh, a, an, a human figure, boy usually. And um, so when they, he started to create that, Uh, there was a real concern that this was not acceptable, that audiences would not want to see a human mother, or what seemed to be a human mother, but was actually Mother Earth, nourishing both a bear and a human. And they're, they're gnawing at their, her breasts with, with sharp teeth. And it's not a scene of Mother Earth with 
you know, it's the, the, you know, the child of humanity, you know, suckling on her breast in a nurturing way. No, it's, it's our modern society gnashing at her teeth, ripping her skin, bleeding her dry. Morisot was going to use that platform as almost an environmental protest. So they said, you'll have to change this to two um, people, two boys. And he said, well, no, I'm not going to change it. And they said, well, you really, you have to. So he left, um, he left Expo. And that really gives you a sense of, again, of his agency. He had this sense of who he was as an artist. He was not going to change it. He didn't have to change it. He walked. He walked. He wasn't going to bow to the will of Indian affairs, so he split. And what happened to the mural? But what happened is his apprentice and good friend, um, Carl Ray, who was a Cree artist who'd been working with him for quite a while, agreed to finish the, the mural. And Morisot allowed that to happen. And uh, so Carl adjusted the mural to include two babies. And then at the bottom wrote, this is in honor of Moses Poetan Nanakanegos, who's Morisot's grandfather that was such an important pivotal figure and shaman in his life. I heard a ding. Yes, Carl Ray, another member of the PNIAI, was working with Morisot on his mural and was charged with finishing the work for his mentor. I don't know if Norval would say that Carl was Norval's assistant. He was his friend, and Carl was a great artist. And, you know, if people don't know about Carl's art, you know, Carl taught art in remote communities, but Carl was also a great realistic artist. And so you kind of have these two different veins of Carl's art where, you know, he will do a, a, you know, a picture of a of a moose that looks like a looks like a moose, and and he's a was a very skilled, uh, realistic artist, uh, and then he, uh, you know, adopted Norval's style of art, um, and expanded on it, and Norval was always very impressed with Carl's lines, and and the the uh, the skill of his his hand. Carl Ray was another artist, like Morisot, who broke taboos by depicting legends and teachings in his work. He was born on the Sandy Lake First Nation in Northern Ontario in 1943. At the age of six, he was sent to a residential school 300 miles north of Kenora. There he learned about Jesus. He also drew a lot. He apparently filled his workbooks with sketches which earned him severe punishments from teachers and school administrators. There was no helpful headmaster to encourage his art? Not for Carl. His father died when he was 13, which precipitated his departure from school. He had to work to support his family. He worked in bush camps and mines. Soon he would contract tuberculosis and be sent to a sanatorium, a place where someone recovers from tuberculosis, in Fort William. Okay, so we have another podcast, The Story of a National Crime, in which we talk about Fort William. Not the best place. Not a good place. For Carl, the sanatorium afforded him time to work on his art. 
He devoted his time there to drawing and painting. Some biographies of him call it occupational therapy, which was quite common in sanatoria and segregated hospitals at the time. He was in sanatorium for a year. He even sold some paintings while he was there. He eventually returned to Sandy Lake in 1966. Just in time for Expo. That's right. So what happened in the wake of Expo 67? Well, Alex lost his job. Oh, because he was, well, he was an employee of, of, of Indian Affairs and he had a contract with them for the pavilion. And then after the pavilion happened, uh, basically his contract was canceled. He wasn't, he wasn't in office anymore and, they, and he, he fulfilled his, the terms of his contract by painting 80 paintings or some such number that became you know, a major part of the indigenous art collection at, at Indian Affairs. Uh, Amber Morrisow? Expo 67 became a real flashpoint for Morisot because while he was hanging out there ahead of the opening when he was painting, he met Herbert Schwartz. And Herbert Schwartz was an art figure. Actually, he was a doctor at McGill University Medical School, um, but he was into art. And he asked Morisot if he'd be interested in doing an exhibition in Montreal. And that led to him going to France. Um, for his first uh, two international exhibitions. So he bounced. He knew well enough that he didn't need to play nice with Expo 67. He'd be fine. And the pavilion itself, well, it became a hot topic in the press. I know that there was some surprise over uh, how things developed and and the strength of the critical commentary in the text and displays within the pavilion. There's this story uh, that gets repeated um, about uh, the queen going through the pavilion and leaving uh, ashen-faced, not anticipating what what, uh, she was going to be seeing in there. What did she see? Well, despite the censorship some of the artists faced in the development process, the Indians of Canada pavilion was radical for its time. Remember, this all happened during the 60s scoop. Indigenous kids were still being taken from their parents and given to white families. Residential schools and day schools were still operating. But in this atmosphere, the Indigenous organizers present a sobering account of Indigenous settler relations. Explain. Well, let's go back to that NFP film. So, say you're a white family from Peterborough, Ontario, and you've made the drive to Montreal the most cosmopolitan city in the nation. You're there to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Confederation. You walk into this massive teepee, though it's made of steel and concrete, but you walk into this teepee and the first thing you see is a sign that says, when the white man came, we welcomed him with love. Well, that sounds nice. Right. And then, as you move your way through the pavilion, you're faced with every way in which the white man took advantage of that love for 300 years. Signs saying, War and peace treaties deprived us of our land. We wanted to live our own life on our own land. There's a whole room dedicated to the destructive impact of the residential school system. For many attendants, this is how they learned that residential schools weren't a positive thing for indigenous people. I see why the queen might have been ashen. 
Well, apparently, as reported, the Queen ignored a huge backlit display that featured a treaty signed by her ancestor, George II, display in a section of the pavilion entitled The Broken Treaties. <laughs> the press saw the pavilion as an affront. Settler journalists were miffed, if I can substitute one word for another. They felt that somehow the Indians, consulting the development of the pavilion, had tricked organizers. At a time that was meant for celebrating Canada, they had put a wrench in the works, and in the eye of the nation. But evidently, the artists had demonstrated the incredible ways in which art can offer keen social critiques, dispense political commentary, and raise awareness about injustice. They would no longer cater their artistic practices to white buyers and tourists, as the Royal Commission on the National Development of the Arts and the Department of Indian Affairs had encouraged for years. On the next episode of Among Equals... And that was the one thing that Daphne told me right in the beginning. You have a gift. Follow your gift. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not your gift or tell you it's not any good. And... It was those words that uh, really, that encouragement from her. Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the Government of Canada. It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Fladichuk. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Fladichuk, and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berendt at the Indigenous Arts Center. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart, with additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. Knockabout Media Original. Hold on.